Good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's great to see all of you here this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Russell Horner. I'm one of the elders here at the church, and it's my privilege this morning to be able to continue to preach through Psalm 119. Okay, well, let's take God's Word and turn to Psalm 119 as we continue this journey through this incredible psalm. We are on the second stanza this week, verses 9 to 16, which is the bait stanza. Last week, the first eight verses was the Aleph stanza. It might say like bet or baith on top of your Bible there is the heading, but that's just the second eight verses. And remember, this is an acrostic poem. In Hebrew, each verse begins with that Hebrew letter, that bait letter. We don't see it in English, but it's a beautiful thing, and it's a way to memorize this psalm. And it is well worth our time to study it, even memorize it because it teaches us about the value and glory of God. So let's read God's Word together, verses 9 to 16, and we'll dive in. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your Word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are You, O Lord. Teach me Your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of Your mouth. In the way of Your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on Your precepts and fix my eyes on Your ways. I will delight in Your statutes. I will not forget Your Word. Let me pray. Father, what a blessing It is to know that you are not silent, that you have not left your children in the dark, but you reveal yourself through your word, and you use your word to change us and transform us into the image of Christ. Father, we ask that your spirit would do that this morning, that we would attend to your word, that you would weed out any distractions about things going on around us or what we're going to do later, or to help us to delight in your word together. I pray that it would be displayed in our life as we worship You. Please incline our hearts to Your Word. Open our eyes that we may see and understand what Your Word has to say. Unite our hearts to fear Your name. And Father, satisfy us in the morning with Your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Amen. Well, just a few months ago, I became a parent of a teenager. Yeah, I know, right? It's hard to believe. My oldest son, Elliot, turned 13 shocking. I honestly don't know how it's happened. We, I was talking to somebody earlier about that, but it, it feels like we must have lost count or something. We skipped a couple years and he's 13 now, but it just seemed like yesterday he was running down the aisles at church to go to Sunday school as a five-year-old. And now he's taller than my wife and has a much deeper voice than he used to. But it's great watching him grow up. As I think about him growing up, I wonder what his future will look like. I remember some of the challenges that I faced as a teenager just in growing in faith and maturity, but we are living in a very different world now. I remember it used to be controversial for Christians to say that you should save sex for marriage. People used to think we were nuts for believing that. Now it's insane to say that a man cannot marry another man, or a man can't just wake up one day and decide he's a woman. It's even considered a hate speech to talk against that now. It's just insane. I think what's so hard for me to believe is that my kids are growing up in a world that's much more hostile to Christianity than the one I grew up in. A a world where, as judges said, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. I'm sure there's so many parents here, I'm sure you can relate to this worry, relate to this struggle. I pray for my kids constantly. I pray for your kids constantly. 
for all these kids around here, pray that they would keep the faith, that they would love God, they would fight temptation, and they would persevere to the end. I pray that they wouldn't walk away from the Lord they profess, walk away from the church that they grew up in, because I see that time and time again. And that really is the struggle that this psalmist is dealing with, isn't it? If you look at verse 9, he starts the whole stanza with this question. How can a young man keep his way pure? That's not talking about like sexual purity. That's where we usually want to go, but that's, it's much more broad than that. This is perseverance. This is sanctification. Now that this young man is saved, he's trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, how can he keep going? How can he keep following the Lord? How can he be purified and grow in holiness and righteousness? How can he be sanctified? How can he attain that blessed life we talked about last week? In the first eight verses, where he's devoted to the Lord and blameless and upright in heart. Isn't that what we want for our kids? For ourselves? I tell you, that's definitely not the question the world is asking, is it? The world doesn't care one bit about purity and holiness. It's actually preaching the opposite message in every way. The world will tell you to live it up now. Do what feels good. You only live once. YOLO. Is that even a thing anymore? (laughs) Shaking your head. I'm so old it's passed by before I even realized it. (laughs) You only live once. The world will still tell you that though. Don't worry about purity. Don't worry about holiness. Don't worry about God now. No, now is the time to be irresponsible. Now is the time to be immature. No, grow up later when you're old and boring, and then you can follow God. It's what the world will say. And young men in particular seem most vulnerable to these lies. That's why they're addressed in this passage. If you don't believe me, just look at the world around us. I feel we are blessed here at Sovereign Grace to have many young men that are actually seeking the Lord are trusting in Him and growing in holiness. But godly young men pursuing holiness and purity, you just ask the ladies in this room, they're hard to find. They're becoming more of an endangered species in some ways. Lured away from God by money and sex and and popularity and a number of other trivial idols. And it's so sad to see. Now even though this verse addresses young men in this kind of catechism-like question, it doesn't mean that young women and older men and older women are off the hook. Because every single one of us, old or young, are still sinners, aren't we? We are sinners by nature and by practice. And just because you come to Christ and you trust Him in faith doesn't mean your sin just magically disappears. I wish that was the case. So every Christian needs to ask themselves this same question. How can I keep my way pure? How can I persevere in holiness to the end? And this verse answers the question it asks, doesn't it? Look at verse 9. By guarding it, or keeping it, according to your word. Do you hear what the psalmist is saying here? You want to know how you can persevere? You want to know how to keep the faith? You want to know how to grow in holiness and righteousness? Here you go. That's what he's saying. Here it is. This book is the key. This book keeps you and guards you by the power of the Spirit to the end. What does that mean exactly? Well, it means that this book is the guide in purity. It shows us the way, but it also is an instrument. It's also a tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit to shape us and to purify us. Now, theologians of old used to talk about this as a steam engine. I heard this illustration from J.I. Packer. They said it's like comparing a Christian to a steam engine. The steam engine needs two things to go, right? They need the tracks and they need the steam, the power to move along the tracks. Well, the Christian is the steam engine and the Word of God is like the tracks. 
It's the guide. It corrects the wheel. It leads the way. But that train isn't going anywhere without the steam, without the fuel. And that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works through the Word to sanctify us, to purify us. And that's what this verse is teaching us. Really, that's what this whole stanza is teaching us. Verse 9 is like the topic sentence. It introduces the idea, but it leaves us wondering what it looks like, doesn't it? How does this look in my life? How does the Word transform us? And so that's what verses 10 through 16 will teach us. And really today, I want to answer one question. It's the same question in verse 9. How can we keep our way pure according to God's Word? Well, first, by letting God's Word dwell in our hearts. Second, by letting God's Word be displayed in our life. And third, by letting God's Word define our past. And fourth, letting God's Word direct our future. Yes, they're all D's. Good old alliteration. I wish they were all B's. That would have been perfect for the stanza. (laughs) Good work. But letting God's Word dwell in our hearts be displayed in our lives, define our past, and direct our future. So first, let's look at verse 10 as it teaches us how to let God's Word dwell in our hearts. Verse 10. With my whole heart, I seek you. This is where the dwelling process has to begin. It has to begin with this pursuit of God. This devotion, this commitment to Him. It can't begin by pursuing holiness alone. Holiness, purity, those are great things, but they're not the end game. They're not the end goal. God's Word does dwell in us to purify us. But it just doesn't purify us for purity's sake. That's legalism. God's Word dwells in us to purify us so that we can commune with God. So that we can relate to God. So that we can worship God. And so the first step in that dwelling process is to direct our effort, our goals, our attention to Him. To trust Him in faith. To say with the psalmist, Lord, I seek You with my whole heart. That's a bold claim. I hope you feel that. I seek you with my whole heart. I have an undivided heart for you, Lord. I seek you and you alone. Can you honestly say that? Could you honestly say, Lord, I am giving you my whole heart? Or do you feel like a liar when you say that? I think many of us often do feel like a liar, and it could be for one of two reasons. One, we actually are liars. Maybe we're in that place where we don't want to seek God with our whole heart. We want to hold on to the world in one hand and hold on to God in the other and try to live that middle ground and it just doesn't work. Or maybe you're one that believes the lies I said before and say, you know what, I'm not going to give God my whole heart yet. i got a lot of living to do. I need to live it up now. If you believe these lies, whether you're young or you're old, I need to warn you. You can't just magically flip a switch one day and become a different person. You are becoming your future self right now. If you chase after the world, all you will be is worldly. And it will just leave you empty. And more importantly, if you chase after this world, all you're doing is storing up wrath for yourself for the day of judgment. I beg you, if you believe this, repent. Don't ignore your sin. Don't chase after the world. Say with the psalmist, Lord, with my whole heart I seek you. I'm sure there are still many of us that want to say that. But Phil, it's a struggle to say that. You address the Lord and say, Lord, I want to give you my whole heart, but it's so hard. I feel like it's being divided all the time. I feel like the world's pulling one way and you're pulling the other. I just don't know how to do this. I'm weak. The flesh is strong. The world is strong. Lord, I want to give you my whole heart. If that's you this morning, you're just like the psalmist. Listen to what he says in the rest of the verse. Verse 10, With my whole heart I seek you. 
Let me not wander from your commandments. Isn't that an interesting statement? You would think that somebody that says, Lord, I'm giving you everything, wouldn't even be tempted to walk away. But if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, you know that's not true. You know you can be devoted to Him one minute and feel like you're tempted to walk away from Him forever the next. See, the psalmist is committing himself to God, but he doesn't trust himself. He doesn't trust his commitment. He's begging to God to not only save him, but to keep him. Lord, my heart is yours. I can't handle it. Keep it, Lord, please. It's like that great hymn, right? Come thou fount. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. I just can't handle this. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. This is what faith looks like. It's humble devotion, commitment to God. I love what Spurgeon says about this. He says the man of God exerts himself, but he does not trust himself. This is what we're called to do. If the Word is ever going to dwell in us, it has to begin with this commitment of faith to God, this trust in Him. And then what does it look like once the Word is dwelling in us? Verse 11, I've stored up Your Word in my heart that I might not sin against You. There's the purity we're talking about. Not sinning against God. Not shaking our fist in God's face. How does that happen? Well, the psalmist says he's stored up or treasured up God's Word if you have the NASB. This is not like storing up in the sense of hiding God's Word. Like a kid might hide something behind their back when they're in trouble or something like that. That's not what's going on here. Some translations lean that way. But the psalmist is storing up God's Word to preserve it to treasure it, to value it. It's like Mary in the New Testament when Jesus is born and all these great things are happening. God's Word is being fulfilled. Luke says in in Luke 2, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. We do the same thing, don't we? If that was us, we'd pull out our smartphone and snap a picture and throw it on Facebook or something because we don't want to forget that moment. Maybe Mary would do that if she was alive today. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. But we're, we're recognizing in some way that this is a valuable moment and I don't want to lose it. I want to do extra work. I want to do the hard work in keeping it so that it stays. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3.16, I love this language, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it take up residence in your soul. Make itself at home so it never leaves. That's what the psalmist is calling us to do here. But I tell you, it's not easy, is it? It's hard work because in reality, there's nothing, nothing in the world more easily lost than God's Word. Jesus teaches us this in the New Testament in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. I don't have time to go through that complete this morning, but if you remember that parable, Jesus is likening hearing the Word to the farmer scattering seed. And it falls on four different soil. And the Word is the seed. And remember, in three of those four cases, it doesn't take. It's snatched up or it's choked out or it's scorched by the sun. Only one out of the four does the Word of God actually have roots and bear fruit. Now, Jesus isn't trying to give us a statistical analysis on only one out of four people hear it, but it's still true that it doesn't take most of the time. You know this to be true. How many sermons have you heard and been unchanged by? How many times have you taught your kids something and they forgot it a second later? It's hard work to do this. This is so discouraging as a preacher or as a parent when you labor to teach people the Word, isn't it? You know that it might not dwell in their hearts, so why even do it? Why not just throw up your hands and give up and say, I'm done with this? Well, we do it because of what fruit it bears. When God's Word dwells in our hearts, it purifies us. It transforms us. 
That's why the psalmist is so emphatic here. Don't just hear God's Word. Don't just say God's Word. Don't just read God's Word or study God's Word. No, treasure God's Word. Let it dwell in your hearts that you might not sin against God. Is this our practice as a church? Is this really how we treat the Word? I know we have many opportunities to hear the Word, but do you long to hear it? Do you reorient your life and your schedule to hear it more? Whether it's corporate worship on Sunday morning or taking time out of your life to hear the Word as you read it yourself. Do we review it? Do we memorize it? Do we meditate on it so we don't lose it? So we don't get distracted by the world? Do we treasure it and hear it no matter how we hear it? No matter who the the person is speaking the Word to you? No matter what passage it comes from? Do we treasure God's Word? Does it really dwell within us? Or do we run from it? Avoid it? Because it exposes the sin and the ugliness inside and instead chase after the trivial and the transient and these foolish idols of the world. If we're ever going to keep our way pure, God's Word must dwell in our hearts. And that's the first point. How can we keep our way pure? By letting God's Word dwell in our hearts. And that's really the foundation for everything else being said here. So secondly... We let God's Word be displayed in our life. And this is the response of the dwelling. Look at verse 12 with me. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statues. The psalmist begins here by praising God, worshiping God, saying you are blessed, you're beautiful, you're glorious, you're worthy of all praise and glory. Why is that? Because this is Yahweh. Did you notice that? It's the capital L-O-R-D. This is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, covenant-making God. You are faithful even to your unfaithful people. You've revealed your goodness and your grace through your work and through your word. You are the fountain of all blessings. Why? Because you're blessed in and of yourself. That's who you are. Oh, the psalmist is not treating God here as this kind of cosmic vending machine. You're kind of, I'm going to go to God to just get something from Him. Manipulate Him in such a way to get what I want. No, he's going to God for God's sake. I don't want the blessings by themselves. I want the one who is blessed. I don't want the Word of God by itself. I want the God of the Word. He's the one I seek. He's the one I worship. And as I worship, what happens? Look at the rest of verse 12. I want more. Teach me your statutes. Lord, give me more of this. As God's Word dwells in our hearts and it fills us up, it spills forth in praise, but it doesn't make us want to stop. It's not like a Thanksgiving dinner where you eat so much that you're just like, I could never eat again. It's not like that at all. When God's Word is filling up our hearts and it's coming out in praise, we just want more. We beg God to teach us, to preach through us as well. If God's Word dwells in our hearts, it will be displayed in worship. And this is so important for Christians. It doesn't matter where you are or what you're going through. You could be in a cave or a cathedral. Be in the middle of a jungle preaching the gospel or in a jail cell somewhere. When things are going good and when things are going bad, praise just comes out of your soul because God's Word is dwelling in your hearts. We see so many wonderful examples of this all through Scripture. God's people almost bursting forth in this kind of spontaneous praise. I love the book of Romans for this very reason. Romans is saturated with theology, isn't it? It's a beautiful book, but as Paul is expounding the work of the Lord, teaching these great things, he's dwelling on the Word, and it just comes out in these kind of spontaneous little praise services. In Romans 11, he's talking about how the Gentiles are grafted in, how this mystery of God's bringing the Gentiles into God's people, and he just stops in the middle and says, 
Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? It's almost a reflex for Paul that as God's Word is being stirred up in his heart, he can't help but praise the God of the Word. And that's exactly what the psalmist is doing here, isn't it? But that's not all he's doing. It's not the only way that God's Word is displayed. Look at verse 13. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. This is talking about proclamation. This is preaching. This is teaching. This is evangelism and exhortation and encouragement. It's simply talking to others about the Word of God. It's not just coming behind a pulpit on Sunday mornings and preaching. No, it's taking the Word of God, applying it to yourself, and applying it to other people. As the Word of God dwells in us, it leads us to preach, to teach, to tell people about the God that we love. It's just spilling forth in how we talk to our family and our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers about this God. It's almost uncontrollable because it's so much filled up our hearts, it pours forth in praise and in preaching the Word. Oh, brothers and sisters, does this describe you? So filled with God's Word, it's just constantly overflowing with praise and proclamation. It impacts everything you say and do. Or would people look at your life and say, you know what, they know the Word. They don't love the God of the Word. As James says, they deceive themselves because they are hearers only and not doers of the Word. Well, please hear me. If your study of the Word doesn't lead you to praise, to proclamation, and to hunger for more, then God's Word is not truly dwelling in your hearts. How can we keep our way pure? By letting God's Word dwell in our hearts, be displayed in our life. And number three, by letting God's Word define our past. Define our past. Verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight. As much as in all riches. Well, the psalmist is at it again. He's delighting. He's treasuring God's Word. But did you notice there's something different about this verse? What is he delighting in? It's not the testimonies themselves. It's the way of the testimonies. This new way. This blessed life. This holy life that God has given him. That can sound really funny to us, can't it? I mean, who likes rules? None of us like rules. How could the psalmist say, I love your rules. I delight in the way of your testimonies. I delight in all of this. Well, C.S. Lewis illustrates this beautifully, I think, when he says this, delighting in the law is like finding sturdy level ground after taking a shortcut that has gone awry. You ever taken a bad shortcut before? I have many times in my life. One particular time I'm reminded of, actually. You probably can tell this by looking at me, but I'm not a big fan of hiking. I hate it. I, <laughs> I do. I don't get it. If you're going to take a walk, why walk up a hill? Why not just walk where it's flat, right? That makes sense. <laughs> just doesn't make sense to me. If you like hiking, nothing personal, it's fine. I make exceptions for a few things. I will hike if there's fishing involved, and I will hike if my wife asks me to hike. And that's about it. But there was one particular hike that came to mind. When we were on our honeymoon, we were in Hawaii and we were hiking to a waterfall. And we were going through this jungle and hiking to the waterfall. And I still don't know what happened. I was probably distracted by my beautiful new bride and I lost the path. I was the one leading and I led us off into the jungle. It was getting thicker and thicker. I couldn't hear anybody. I couldn't see the path or see anyone. And I was getting a little panicked. Ashley says she didn't notice, but I was freaking out because I was thinking, I'm going to be the idiot who dies on his honeymoon. Right? (laughs) 
He gets lost in the forest and can't find his way. But I thought, it's like, well, waterfalls lead to rivers. I know the river's that way, so let's go towards the river. And so we headed back that way. And then when we got close, we stumbled upon the path. I don't remember being so glad to see dirt in my entire life. I was so thankful for that path for the rest of the day. That's what the psalmist is saying here. He's saying, I rejoice in the way of righteousness because I was lost. I was on the path to destruction. I was on the wrong path. But you've put me on a new path, the path of life, the path of righteousness that leads to you. But it's not just the path that he's on. And he's rejoicing in the path behind him as well. It's really hard to tell in the ESV, but this verse is actually in the past tense. Verses 10 through 14 are all technically in the past tense. So verse 14 should say something kind of like this. In the way of your testimonies, I have delighted as much as in all riches. I have delighted. The psalmist is not just rejoicing in the path before his feet. He's looking back to his past, seeing the saving work of God. The sovereign hand of God to direct him this whole time. He's looking at this evidence of grace and he's rejoicing. He's rejoicing in what God has already done for him. What does this have to do with us? Everything. We live in a world where everyone defines themselves by their past. Everyone. We're victims of our past, of past trauma or past failures or past decisions. Our world teaches you that if you have problems, look in your past to find someone or something to blame. Blame your parents, blame your grandparents, blame the system or the color of your skin, or lately, blame your biology. Whatever it is, you're not the problem. It's your past. This is the air we breathe in this victim culture, isn't it? And it can so easily seep its way into the church. I talk to Christians who are paralyzed by their past, haunted by sins that they just never find a sense of forgiveness. Well, this psalm teaches us, for those of us that have trusted in Christ, We don't have to let the world define our past. The Word of God defines our past. No matter what we've done, no matter what we've been through, no matter how ugly and horrible and difficult our past may have been as believers, when we look back on our past, all we see is what we've been saved from. All we see is the grace of God, the sovereign hand of God to turn not only just good things for His glory, but even the things that seemed horrible at the time for His glory, as Romans 8.28 says. We know that for those who love God, all things, not some things, not most things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Maybe you're here this morning and you look back in your past and it's hard to see the evidence of grace. It's hard to find anything to rejoice in. Maybe even as you hear this sermon, you're thinking, I don't know if the Word of God has ever dwelt in me. It doesn't seem like there's much evidence here and it's just leading you to despair. The good news is that God's Word defines our past most clearly by pointing us to the Word, Jesus Christ. It tells us that Jesus came to live the life that we failed to live. He came to obey in our place, to delight in God's Word for us, to let God's Word dwell in Him richly, to pour forth in praise and proclamation so that He would redefine our past and direct our future. We don't have to let the world of God define our past. Jesus defines our past. It's not the path that we were on that's leading to eternity. God has saved us and washed our sins away. He's put us on Jesus' path. That's what the Father sees when He looks at us. He doesn't see our past. He sees Jesus' past. And the path ahead is the trail that Jesus has already blazed for us that leads right to the Father. So we trust in Him for our past and for our future. And that's the last point. We let God's Word dwell in us, be displayed in our lives. We let it define our past, and we let it direct our future. Look at verse 15. Notice the tense changes here. I will 
meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. These are in the future tense because as the psalmist is looking back on his past, looking back on the hand of God, finding joy and peace in God's work, what's the next step? Keep going. Keep going. You're on the right path. So these are vows. These are commitments. These are prayers from the psalmist in light of everything we learned. In light of God's Word dwelling and being displayed in our lives. In light of all that Jesus has done, the psalmist says, Lord, help me. Help me do these things. Help me meditate on Your Word. So it dwells in my heart. Help me delight in Your Word. So it's displayed in my life through proclamation and praise. Let me define my past by Christ and not my sins and my struggles. And Lord, it says in verse 16, let it direct my future so that I will not forget Your Word or neglect Your Word. Oh, I think this is probably one of our biggest struggles, isn't it? You ever neglect God's Word? Forget God's Word? You're not alone in this. God's people have been struggling with this for a long time. It blows me away when I read through Exodus and I see the Israelites after being saved from Egypt Just days later, after these tremendous plagues and God parting the Red Sea and God wiping out Pharaoh's army, they're headed to Sinai in the middle of the wilderness. And what are they doing? Complaining. Oh, we had meat in Egypt. We had food. Wasn't our life great in slavery back there? Moses, you brought us out here to kill us. I don't know about you, but I kind of want to wring their neck and be like, you just saw one of the most glorious works of God in salvation history and you're complaining? I hope you can see yourself in that. Because we know that our Lord has risen from the dead. We have His Word that transforms us and guides us into all purity. And what do we do? We neglect it. We forget it. We run after entertainment and money. Idols that just float away in a second. We run after things in this world to fix our problems rather than putting ourselves continually under the teaching of the Word rather than doing the hard work of memorizing it and meditating on it, to remember it and let it dwell in us and delight us, we run after the world for a shortcut, don't we? Putting band-aids on our problem that never really fix us. And over and over again, we come up empty. But we keep going after the world and we start believing the lies of this world that this life has never been this hard for Christians. It's so much harder now. No one understands. No one gets what I'm struggling with, and I have no resources to help me. Well, these are lies from the pit of hell. God is at work in the sinful, fallen world, sanctifying His church through His Word by the power of the Spirit. And we do have the greatest resource of all, don't we? We have God's Word to guide us every step of the way. And we have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And what's He doing right now? Praying for us. Praying for us so that we make it home one day safe and sound and looking just like Jesus. Well, let us vow with the psalmist to keep our way pure according to God's Word by letting God's Word dwell in us richly to be displayed in our life through praise and proclamation Let it continually define our past by looking to Christ so that we follow in Christ's footsteps as it directs our future and He leads us all the way home. Let me pray. Father, we do delight in Your Word. What a gift it is to meditate on Your precepts. 
Father, we give our whole heart to You, asking You to keep us, to persevere us, to sanctify us by the power of Your Spirit through Your Word. May we never neglect or forget Your Word. And when we do, help us to repent. Help us to encourage one another in this struggle, this battle, to value and treasure Your Word as we're being called to here. It is a battle, Lord, but You have been there every step of the way and You will continue to be. Empower your saints for the glory of your Son. We pray this in His name and for His sake. Amen.